The COVID-19 pandemic has changed life for all of us. But even before this, we were already fighting an epidemic, the battle against chronic disease. And those with chronic diseases are at highest risk of contracting severe coronavirus infections. So how do we protect ourselves during these uncertain times? But more importantly, how do we view health? Welcome to the Glass Half Healthy Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jonar, a physician board certified in internal medicine and certified in lifestyle medicine. In this podcast, I want to address the current crisis of chronic disease and to challenge the conventional attitude towards health. We will be exploring these issues with thought-provoking guests to help redefine what health should mean for all of us. I hope to inspire you to take action towards a happier, thriving life because good health comes to those who expect it. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Dr. Jonar, and this is my podcast, The Glass Half Healthy. It's been a while, so a warm welcome back to all my loyal fans out there. And for first-time listeners to my podcast, ranked in the best 21 medical podcasts to subscribe to by Board Vitals, I've been on a long hiatus from the podcast, but I am grateful to be back and that you are taking the time out to listen. So I hope you're excited for this episode with Dr. Richa Mittal, the founder and medical director of Radiant Health Weight Loss and Wellness in Frisco, Texas. As an internist and diplomat of the boards of obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine, she provides weight management and preventative health services. Dr. Mittal offers a unique program using an integrative approach that treats the whole person, combining specialized medical care with customized nutritional guidance, mindset, and lifestyle coaching. In this episode, we talk about obesity, how it's actually defined, if obesity is even considered a real chronic disease, spoiler alert, it is, and it's linked to risk factors like genetics and lifestyle in the development of obesity. Dr. Mittal shares some common misconceptions she's come across in her private practice with regards to weight loss, and she provides insight into trusted resources for weight loss information on the internet. She then identifies the major pitfalls and obstacles of weight loss and offers keys to starting a successful path for reversing obesity towards healthy living. There's so much great stuff in this episode, and we have a lot to cover, so let's enter the pod with Dr. Richa Mittal. First and foremost, I am so happy we are finally getting to sit down and talk to one another. I know it's been a battle, you know, two doctors with very busy schedules, but we made it happen. I know, you know, you founded your own private clinic. You have a family, so I want you to know that I respect how you're able to handle all this stuff and that you, you made the time to talk to us today. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. And um, I'm so excited about our conversation. Me as well. So we share some things in common. We're both internal medicine certified, board certified, and also lifestyle medicine certified. But you have a board certification in obesity medicine. And so I'm a big fan of yours. You know, the messages you put out on social media. What I love specifically about what you are doing right now is that you take an integrative approach with your patients as the founder and medical director of Radiant Health Weight Loss and Wellness in Texas. So I want to ask you, what inspired you to start this private practice? 
That's a great question. And I, one that I, I, I contemplate often because mm-hmm. you know, it's of course has its challenges as mm-hmm. well, but also a lot of rewards. And really mm-hmm. for me as an internal medicine doctor, I initially started my career working in the hospital. So I would see kind of the tail end or the results of these chronic lifestyle diseases, um, you know, oftentimes like type two diabetes, people mm-hmm. with strokes, heart attacks. And really when I started thinking about what I could do as far as really making an impact, I wanted to address the root cause and Mm -hmm. uh, my professional journey led me to being exposed to the field of obesity medicine when I was a medical director of a weight loss clinic uh, that kind of came my way randomly. And I really discovered my passion and really why I was in medicine and to be able to practice that and really practice it in a more integrative way. I decided to set up my own practice. And I did that about two and a half years ago. And Mm -hmm. it's a direct care membership type of practice, which really allows me to spend a lot of time with my patients, really personalize the medical treatment plan as well as the lifestyle treatment plan and Mm -hmm. treat them as a whole person. And I love what I do. I love that. I love that. You know, and I think as medical doctors, you know, people who aren't really familiar with how clinics are set up, that specific type of practice, that's that's really important for patient care, right? Like you want to be able to spend more time with your patients, you know, as opposed to what we typically see where, you know, if you go to any one doctor in a clinic, they spend anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes with you. I mean, that is not nearly enough time and no fault to any of those doctors out there. It's just the way that the medical business side is set up. So having a practice like that is, I think, super important. I mean, not even just for patients, but for for us physicians to feel like we're we're actually doing a good job with helping patients out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's it's just a big challenge. And like you said, it's, it's just the way that the system is set up. I know that my primary care doctor colleagues, you know, do their best within that 10 to 15 minutes uh, that they're able to have. And really, I wanted to serve as a resource to them to uh, be able to offer something for when they are seeing that patient who would benefit from more counseling, from more intensive medical help. Uh, with their weight-related conditions, because they may be seeing them for, you know, high cholesterol or type two diabetes. Sure. And they they know that they can entrust me with helping them with that aspect that they're not able to cover during that brief visit. Right. Exactly. And so before we get into you know the the deep discussion on being overweight and obese, why don't we first just start out with the basics for our listeners? So how would you you know, kind of define each term, being overweight, being obese, and what does that really mean in practice? Yeah, so first of all, you know, I just want to start with, I know that weight really isn't the full definition of health. And we'll talk more about really how weight can play uh, that role in terms of your overall health. But when we look at just a basic definition, we may describe it in terms of BMI, which is body mass index, which is your weight um, in relationship to your height. And mm-hmm. a BMI of uh, between 25 and 29.9 is considered to be overweight. For a BMI over 30 is considered to be obesity. Of course, we know that that doesn't really tell the whole story. So often mm-hmm. we might look at body fat percentage as a definition. Of course, not everyone may have that available to them in terms of knowing. 
And mm. one caveat in terms of certain ethnicities, so Asian ethnicities um, actually have um, overweight is considered a BMI over 23 or mm. a BMI over 27 is considered obesity. And mm. this leads me to kind of that other definition that we need to be looking at in terms of when we're looking at health Really, we're worried about your metabolic health. What is your risk related to having this excess body fat? And we find that where we carry body fat actually has a greater impact in terms of certain metabolic issues. So when we're looking at waist circumference, which is the measurement around your belly button, roughly, mm -hmm. um, when we look at that, an increased amount of body fat in that area correlates with something called visceral fat which is the fat we have around our midsection. And that we also have definitions based on what ethnicity and then what uh, waist circumference increases risk. So for Caucasian people, that will be a waist circumference for men over 40 inches or waist circumference over 36 inches for women. And then um, ethnicities like Hispanic, Asian, that risk goes up, unfortunately, at a lower waist, which would be uh, 36 inches for men and then 31 and a half inches for women. So there's a lot of different ways to define weight, uh, overweight and obesity. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved your comprehensive answer. I think it's, it's easy for us to kind of, especially for people not in the medical field, you know, throw these terms out there because it's easier for them to understand it that way. But I think that like, it's, this is just like health. I mean, this is such a complex issue that you really have to break it down to depending on what your ethnicity is too, you know? And I actually didn't even know about the whole like scale for Asians having a lower range for, for BMI until I did my lifestyle medicine certification. I was blown away, you know? So no, this is all great information. So, and you know, we mentioned it before. So you're, you're certified in obesity medicine and, you know, as physicians, we get that obesity is actually defined as a disease, but for a lot of our listeners out there, not in the medical field, you know, there's this public sentiment that this is strictly a social label or that obesity is completely a choice. But, you know, there's a whole specialty devoted to this. So from your expertise, right, as, you know, an obesity medicine specialist, why do we consider obesity a real disease? Yeah, I think this is a great topic for even people who are in the healthcare field to learn for more about. For sure. You know, it wasn't until maybe just in the last 10 years or so that the medical, the uh, American Medical Association even recognized obesity as a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it is, is because first of all, it is very complicated. It's mm -hmm. multifactorial, has right. obviously lot of definitions that we're talking about, but we know that obesity does increase risk for certain different conditions that we're going to be talking about today, but in it, in and of itself is a chronic disease mm -hmm. Why? because now we have a better understanding of the pathophysiology, meaning what are the different mm -hmm. things that contribute to obesity and why is it not as simple as eat less, move more? A lot of that has to do with the, the changes that happen in the brain, as well as in the fat cells themselves. Hmm. And so to briefly kind of describe those to you, once we look at that definition and what happens, we could easily say, oh, wow, I can see why this is a disease in and of itself. So number one, we have a weight 
set point in our brain, there's a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And in that we have kind of two different pathways that lead to weight gain and weight loss. And those pathways are regulated by a lot of the things that we don't really even quite understand yet, mm-hmm. but that regulate hunger, that regulate fullness. And there's many different hormones throughout the body, like leptin, ghrelin, adiponectin, GLP-1. These are different receptors in the brain that have, I mean, there's certain areas in the brain that have receptors for these hormones. And so when we are maybe trying to eat less, when we've been dealing with with um, more excess body fat, there's certain hormones that are going to kick in that make you hungrier or mm-hmm. make you burn less calories at rest to try to maintain your weight where it was. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is how our fat cells are uh, mm-hmm. operating, and they're not just mm-hmm. storage. Our fat cells are actually hormonally active. They have receptors for certain hormones. They also produce chemical factors and different hormones that communicate with our brain as well as the rest of the body. And when people have been gaining weight over time, they uh, these fat cells don't operate as normally as they did initially. And that process is called adiposopathy or sick fat disease. And that's basically where we are, again, having these things that are out of our hands. And the these changes when they're occurring are what can make uh, obesity much harder to manage just with a simple eat less, move more strategy. For sure. For sure. That's such a great answer. And, you know, so we're both certified in lifestyle medicine, but, you know, in your experience in both obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine, what have you seen are like the pieces of evidence you've come across in your training and the literature that links genetics versus lifestyle choice to obesity versus both, right? Because I mean, again, just like health, obesity is a very complex issue. So what have you seen? Yeah, you know, it's it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. And we're one to recognize that we don't know everything that we need to know yet in these right. fields. Uh, but there are certain, uh, you know, groups of genes that run in families that might mm-hmm. increase risk of obesity. Mm-hmm. But of we also have habits. So it's kind sure. of that nature versus nurture. Right. We know that there are certain syndromes that are very rare, to be honest with you, that might mm-hmm. contribute to obesity. And then there are certain uh, single genes that can have abnormalities, say, in uh, the amount of leptin, which is a hormone that the body makes, or maybe certain receptors like MC4 is a receptor in that POMC Uh, area in our hypothalamus that regulates weight. And so there are certain conditions like that that can contribute to obesity, but oftentimes it is multifactorial. And I think it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, our genes are not our destiny. And there's a complex interplay between our genes and our environment. And when I say environment, I mean, what kind of environment we're creating within our body. And that's, of course, affected by the foods we eat, whether we have a calorie overload, whether we have physical inactivity, effects of stress, effects of lack of sleep or disruption of circadian rhythms, environmental exposures, medications. And so all of those things interact with your genome or your genetics. And then that's kind of that field of what we call epigenetics, which is 
how that interplay translates into actual um, reality. For sure. Yeah, I love that answer. And, you know, there's some great points you brought up. I mean, I think first and foremost, what you said about genes not being our destiny, you know, Dr. Dean Ornish, who's like, you know, one of the founding fathers of lifestyle medicine, he says this so much that genes are not our fate, you know, and I, I couldn't agree with that more because I think oftentimes, especially, you know, in our society nowadays, you see what happens to your family and then like you, you kind of just chalk it up like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna end up the same route as my, my parents, but that's not, you know, entirely true. You have so much more influence over those genes than you think you do, you know, and it's not just with obesity, it, so many other things too, heart disease. Like, you know, my dad had colorectal cancer. Like there's things that he did that, you know, put him at super high risk of developing that. And we, we have the power in our ability to, to change that path through what you just said, you know, the, the foods we eat, the exposures we have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, of course we have, uh, we have so many modern medicine screening tools to stay on top of, you know, if you do have genetic, uh, say tendencies towards certain diseases that we can screen and, but we can also get into place all these different lifestyle, uh, choices and help our patients really connect the dots to make those happen. And then, of course, we have medications as well to help mitigate risk. So it really needs right. to be a comprehensive approach. For sure. For sure. So that's a great segue into our next question. And, you know, your current work in your weight loss and wellness practice, what are some of the common misconceptions or myths you have come across in the weight loss world? I, I, I see you smiling. I know <laughs> I see you smiling. I know I know you have some answers. So let, let's hear it. So there's there's a lot. Um, I think, number one, there's a lot of information out there. <laughs> hard for people to piece it together. And sure. I think so many of us are struggling, um, especially with this pandemic and everyone's been home and exercise routines are off and all of that. But, you know, number one, there's not just one magic solution. And I think one of the myths out there or several myths are related to if you just do this one thing, you know, this celery juice or this apple cider vinegar supplement or blah, blah, blah. So much stuff out there. If, if something sounds like it's, um, you know, too easy and it's a, it's a one stop solution and someone's trying to sell you something because of it, you got to beware and think about it and go, you know what? be very skeptical uh, about those types of things. That's number one. Number two, I think cutting out whole food groups, you know, so this becomes an issue and uh, we're, you know, kind of seeing all these different fad diets like, okay, keto or carnivore or just, you know, completely never eating any carbs. I think we need to be a bit much more nuanced about it because number one, what is the sustainability of that? Even if you follow something and you lose 20 pounds, if you turn around and gain it right back, what is the point? Not only does that hurt you uh, from a mental health standpoint, it can be very disheartening. It's also, we know um, it, it actually increases the risk for certain health conditions when we do. Mm -hmm. So I think right. what important is, you know, don't follow a fad diet, um, follow something that's sustainable for you, make small changes, and then those can add up. And um, I think another thing is like what worked for somebody else may not necessarily always be the right thing for you. For uh, sure. 
you know, I think the the last myth probably is, or not myth, but misconception, I'll say, mm-hmm. is I'm going to the gym every day and I'm working out five days a week. Why am I not losing any weight? Mm-hmm. And I think that can be really frustrating. And mm-hmm. number one, awesome if you're working out every day because that has health benefits to you outside of, you know, weight loss, but in terms of everything else. For now. Sure. The last piece of that I'll say is like, let's look at what you're eating too, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those inputs have a much more uh, significant impact if you are looking to lose body fat than just exercise alone. Right, right. Again, so many good points you just brought up. I mean, I think first and foremost, just touching on this specific subject you just mentioned, I feel like there is a big misconception out there in the public about what really leads to sustained, you know, weight loss, if you want to call that, you know, is it diet or is it exercise, you know? And I feel like depending on who you talk to, they'll they'll be, you know, telling you one thing versus another. And just in my personal experience and also talking to many medical professionals and people who aren't even in the medical profession, I think oftentimes diet is the bigger role between the two. Percentage-wise, it's hard to slap a number on there, but I would say it's probably the majority of the battle, you know, because if you're exercising every day, but you're eating McDonald's every day, you're not going to put a dent in, you know, what what you want to try to reverse, you know? So I don't know. What what do you think about that? Like the whole exercise versus, you know, uh, nutrition? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the American College of Sports Medicine has some data on this. And basically, you know, to get significant weight loss with exercise alone, one would need to exercise perhaps 300 to 400 minutes a week. That's, that's a, right? That's a lot. If you're a full-time employee, that's a lot. Exactly. Know? And I think like, of course, if you enjoy that and you're able to do that, that's sure. wonderful. We know that uh, in terms of weight maintenance, so once you've, say, made the changes, you've lost some weight, uh, weight maintenance exercise um, in terms of cardiovascular exercise, as well as resistance training can be really a very helpful tool in terms of weight maintenance. So whether you maybe have hit a plateau with your weight loss, or if you're just you know trying to maintain that weight loss, exercise is really important during the weight maintenance phase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the other point I wanted to bring up is like, we were just talking about nutrition versus exercise. I mean, there was all these other things you're doing in your life that might put you at risk for weight gain and not being able to like lose weight like one big one is sleep if you're not sleeping enough your your body's hormones are going to prevent you from losing weight because mechanistically right it's it's a way for your body to kind of like reclaim calories in the event that like you're in a starving process or like you're you're scrounging for food but you can't find it right that's what your body's thinking but in reality because of modern society we have food available to us everywhere so i mean like sleep is such a big issue and like the other issue i would say too is like chronic stress right your your body's chronically stressed again it deals with hormones like you're you're gonna not put the right environment to lose weight and in fact it's probably weight promoting if anything right would you say oh yeah absolutely so you know there's observational data to look at what what the correlation is between having overweight or obesity based on bmi compared to hours slept 
Um, less than six hours or more than nine hours. So basically the golden number is around seven hours. And uh, yes, I think the cardiometabolic risk, we'll call it, is uh, probably mediated by hormones. And we know that people who do like, say, uh, night shifts, they have a harder time uh, maintaining uh, a healthy body weight, uh, sleep deprivation as well related to that. And, um, you know, our body, every single cell in our body has a body clock, right? We have a peripheral mm -hmm. body clock as well as a central body clock in the in an area of our brain. And so, you know, whenever we have a dysregulation of that, that can um, affect hormones like leptin, ghrelin. So leptin is a hormone that kind of tells our body we're full. Ghrelin, it, I always think of it as growling. So your stomach is growling. It increases. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And so we might very well act on those um, impulses or that driving uh, hunger that's coming from that lack of sleep or disruption of our circadian rhythms. When you mentioned stress, you know, there's a lot of different ways why that might promote weight gain. Uh, yes, absolutely. Hormones are affected. We have, when we have a lot of stress, we release more cortisol. And that constant release of cortisol, we know, increases those hunger hormones, decrease. Mm -hmm hormones. They also increase activity of insulin, which is a fat storage type of hormone. But not only that, when we're stressed, sometimes we're turning to things that bring us comfort, aka what? comfort food. 100% <laughs> emotional eating. Yes, 100%. Yeah. We can all relate. We can all relate. I relate to it personally, you know, with the pandemic this past year or so, um, that's been a major driver of weight gain for a lot of people. And, you know, it's about finding other ways of dealing with stress so that we're not always turning to food for comfort. For sure. For sure. I love that. So then, you know, it kind of touched on the next question I was going to ask you, which was, you know, what people should be looking out for when they're approaching all this information out there. But are there specific sources that you could recommend that you could go to and be like, okay, this is a reliable source? Like, what are those things out there in the on the internet? Yeah. So in terms of the internet, the Obesity Action Coalition is a great nonprofit uh, that has a lot of information on their website about other resources in terms of what you may be looking for. If you are looking for just kind of general information, well, following doctors like us <laughs> you yeah. who are born Certified MDs, uh, you know, is a is a great place to start. Don't get all your information from the internet. Uh, sure. There's, you know, random stuff out there. Uh, the uh, Obesity Medicine Association has a lot of resources, not only for community but also for other healthcare professionals who are looking for evidence based information uh, about uh, weight and uh, weight weight management. Even there's a, there's an app on there where, or not an app, but a uh, link there where you can find an Obesity Medicine Association uh, kind of board certified MD in your area. Nice. Nice. I know we both laughed about, you know, basically self-promoting our our platforms, but honestly, I think that it's I'm I love that there's so many more doctors out there using social media to promote, you know, evidence-based healthier living. You know, I th I think it's something that has been just kind of beautiful over the past couple of years because we as you know very well know and we we talked about it before there's just so much information on the internet. And so being able to go to reliable sources, I think is key, you know? So 
a plug for all of us fellow doctors out there do, do, doing the good good work we're doing. So so let me just let's transition to like actual weight loss for patients. So like from your own experience helping patients with weight loss, what do you see are like the major obstacles that you you commonly see in practice? That's a great question. So number one, aiming for perfection and nothing but less than perfection. Mm. I think that it's mm -hmm. really important when you go into any kind of lifestyle change to think about giving yourself kind of grace, giving yourself time to get there. We get very impatient sometimes with ourselves, but also knowing that that is what derails you when you're not perfect, because it will happen. Mm -hmm. And then uh, throwing in the towel and kind of just like on in the wagon, off the wagon type of mentality. Right. So number one, know that you're not going to be perfect. And it's actually, you're going to be successful, even if you're not perfect. I had a patient the other day who said, gosh, I just feel like I'm muddling through this, but she's making great progress. And I said, well, think about the fact that even within the craziness of your life, you're managing to make sustainable changes that are doable in the long run, they're resulting in results, but also you, it feels like it's sustainable, awesome. So that's number one. Number two, in terms of just like practical stuff, look at what's on the plate. I think mm -hmm. that that's uh, mm -hmm. important. Um, and we'll get into what the plate should look like in a moment. But the second aspect of that is try to eat at home more. We know mm -hmm. that eat out, not only are the ingredients perhaps not the things we might have been using ourselves, uh, the food is loaded with lots of fat and sugar and salt and calories. And to have any type of weight loss, you need to have a calorie deficit. And I think that when we eat at home, we are able to control that better. So, you know, that's important. In terms of what the plate should look like, I know that oftentimes, yes, we need to, of course, we need to create a calorie deficit, but when we're constantly thinking about restriction, that can be really uh, not only mind numbing, but can also be a burden. And, you know, it, it comes from a place of uh, restriction rather than abundance. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to say is let's think about what we want our plate to look like most of the time. Again, you don't have to be perfect. Half the plate vegetables. Is that possible? Let's think about what we want to add there. Vegetables are full of fiber, nutrition. It's going to keep you full. And again, the focus is what to have more of then, right? Then we know like quarter of our plate perhaps is protein, whole grains, and then fats have a place on there. Of course, looking into where each of those, you know, uh, sources are coming from, then that gets more nuanced. But mm -hmm. quick thing to begin with is can half my plate be vegetables today or on this meal right in front of me? What's the best choice I can make? Love those answers. Really love those answers. I mean, there were so many good points you just mentioned. I think one is progress over perfection. You got to always remember that because it's so, and I posted about this on social media a couple, <laughs> a couple days ago. It's so easy to compare ourselves to other people posting all these, you know, personal successes about like their their weight transformation but what we don't realize is a lot of that stuff takes time to happen you got to be patient you know I, I think we want in our society we want instant gratification like right away right yeah. it's not that stuff does not happen overnight you got to be patient with the process the other important part too like i love that you said making half your your plate plants 
you have to also realize to your body, starting with your taste buds, but your gut too, needs to get adjusted to eating that way. Because if you're transitioning from processed, you know, kind of like meat, animal heavy products to like more plants, your, your GI tract is probably gonna reject it at first, but over time, I promise you, you'll see the differences and you'll want to like eat more of that stuff and kind of be detested from like the other processed foods you were eating previously, you know? Yeah, and I think processed food, you know, requires a, a mention. <laughs> the Yeah, the oh yeah. Food we know, you know, just separate from weight, of course. That's For sure. What we're talking about today, but it has so many... Uh, you know, we know that it, it increases our risk of dying. And mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, it's very prevalent. It's oftentimes driven out of convenience. I get mm -hmm. that. I think everyone on some level probably recognizes like, man, this is probably not great for me. Um, and so really kind of working with people or professionals or yourself, just kind of starting to just cut out processed food as much as you can. For sure. And uh, you know, start there and just recognize that, again, like you said, maybe our taste buds are going to take a little bit more time to adjust to that. And again, coming from a place of what else can I add rather than constantly focusing on restriction and, uh, you know, plugging in yourself to resources on how to make it easier. I think our our, our brains are so occupied with so much stuff. We don't want things to be hard. Sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, I think it bears mentioning once again about the whole mindset of scarcity versus abundance. You know, I feel like we as human beings don't want to feel restricted. So going into a mindset like, well, I'm taking away this, like try to change your mindset about that, you know, try to change your mindset. Well, these foods that I'm about to eat and will continue eating are going to nourish my body with with nutrients that matter to like all my organs and just my overall health. You know, I think going in with that mindset, I think is is key. So I'm glad you you mentioned that. So, and then for those that are struggling with their weight, like what would you say are the keys to starting a successful path besides what we already just said towards healthy living? What are some of the additional keys, would you say? Yeah, so, you know, additional things is to recognize when we're looking at a person who's been dealing with um, excess body fat, overweight, obesity over time, there are those changes that have occurred in their fat cells, right? So we mm -hmm. were talking about the sick fat disease or adiposopathy. We understand that there's a weight set point in the brain. And, you know, in terms of if someone has been struggling for a long time, oftentimes it's not your fault when you start to regain weight. So I think that's really important to recognize that. And yes, absolutely, the nutrition, the lifestyle, the mindset, the sleep, the stress, the movement, we have to build those habits long-term. But oftentimes, how to avoid that weight regain cycle of going back and forth, that's where, yes, procedures like the bariatric surgeries that we hear about, like a gastric sleeve, or if a person is a medically a candidate for that, or even medications that we use, mm -hmm. help people to connect the dot between willpower and actually being able to fight against those hormones and, that are working against you in that time, trying to get you back to where you were. And there is a stigma around 
uh, me medication for weight loss. Um, weight loss medications are not a easy fix. They're not the mm -hmm. easy they're not a magic pill. Yes, you have to absolutely change all the other things we're talking about. But for some people, maintenance phase in, a, you know, whether they used medications or not during their mm -hmm. weight loss phase can sometimes make the difference and trying to find that, um, you know, missing ingredient that might be able to help them to continue on with those with those changes and fight against those hormonal changes that are not really in our control. For sure. I actually really like that. I think analogous to that is like the work that I do as a hospitalist, you know, like I think a lot of times people see me promoting healthy living and I, I think that there is time and place for what I do as a hospitalist. Like I wouldn't have a job if what we do wasn't effective, you know, we're great at treating acute illnesses, but I think chronic disease is such a big issue that like some of the stuff you mentioned, if it's indicated, sure, why not? Like we, that person might need it to get to get past that hump, you know? So like, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that you should be open to anything, whether it's lifestyle or if a medication is indicated or even a procedure might be indicated in that regard, you know? Yeah. But, you know, in terms of lifestyle, I think the, the biggest driver, and I don't have a big study on this to quote, sure, but sure. my experience, what I see mm -hmm. is that stress and not addressing stress. And I think long-term really uh, uh, putting things into place in your life to manage that because everybody is just go, go, go. And whether it's the food choices that are being made in the family out of the fact that things need to be convenient because we're all busy. I think, you know, the lack of kind of cooking or skills or whether it's just kind of like, oh my God, thinking I don't have time to cook. You know, it's going to take too much time. Uh, there are ways to kind of meal prep and batch cook. And I work on this with my patients. I do a lot of culinary coaching because it doesn't need to be super complicated. So, you know, that's, I think, a long-term uh, skill to work on. But stress is the, really the driver oftentimes of not only our food choices, but those, those conveniences that we look for, for and sure. the effects on the body that we just talked about. Right, right. So, any other pitfalls that you could think of that, you know, when people are going through their weight loss journey to look out for? Yes. So number one, stop weighing yourself every day. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. I mean, even just as an aside, like, you know, I have like a daily thread with my sisters and my cousins and, you know, I'm the only guy on the thread, by the way, but they, they talk to me about this all the time. I'm like, don't weigh yourself. I mean, it's it's counterproductive. Yes, you you want to you want to at least keep track, maybe periodically, but you, you really shouldn't do it daily, just because it's gonna. It, it goes back to what I was saying before about being patient. You're not gonna you're not gonna lose 15 pounds in the course of 24 hours. You know what I mean? Right. But the important thing too, is that when you, so if you see it going down and that was your goal, you're like, yay. And when you see it go up, it can completely send people down a spiral and go, oh my gosh, uh, you know, what's the point of what I'm doing when really fat loss is happening on a very minuscule level, mm. you're going to mm -hmm. see over time. That's just body water. Totally. So what I tell people is like, you know, maybe every, every week, like once a week, you're kind of tracking your progress and, uh, you know, the, those day-to-day -day fluctuations really don't serve you, whether mm -hmm. it's 
up or down, it's not real fat loss and it can really mess with your mind and it's just counterproductive because you're, right. you're trying to build habits, but uh, look at trends over time, not day to day. That's a big pitfall. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, before we go there, where can people find you online? Yeah. So my practice website is radianthealthdallas.com. I actually have a blog and a uh, wellness newsletter I send out every month. And on Instagram, Facebook, I'm at MD. Awesome. So, okay, people, make sure to check her out on Instagram and her website, Radiant Health Dallas. We'll have those links to in our show notes. It's been awesome talking to you. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show and really glad to have this conversation. I think it'll be so helpful for many people out there. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. And thank you for all that you're doing to raise awareness. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, we'll talk soon, okay? Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. So how did that one land for you? And how knowledgeable is Dr. Richa Mittal? I hope that our discussion helps inspire you further down the path of your weight loss journey. Please reach out to Dr. Mittal and me to let us know how this episode was for you on our social platforms, which you can find all the links to in our show notes. Lastly, I'm always interested in improving this show, so email me at drjonar at gmail.com if you have any suggestions on topics you want to hear, how we can make the show better, or to just let us know how a specific episode or guest helped inspire you. And as always, I look forward to hearing from you. Very thankful for Dr. Mittal being on the show. And as always, very thankful for you tuning in. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review my podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And share it with your family, friends, and online because sharing is caring. Thanks again to the wonderful and smart Amelia Liu, my intern, to Jacob Ferrer for production help, and to Stock Sounds for the music. And lastly, to you. Thank you again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, your state of health starts with your state of mind. So till next time, enjoy the process, my friends. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice, so please talk to your primary physician for that. In addition, the views and opinions expressed by me are my own and not that of my former, current, or future employer. This also applies to my guests. Finally, we do our best to make every effort to relay correct information. We do not guarantee its accuracy. Thank you for listening.